0: Don't touch a button, I get it. Perfect. Um, It's great to be together this morning. Dave, is there any chance? Can we open as many physical doors as physically possible? Because I feel like I'm a sweaty mess. And I don't know if anyone else is feeling a sweaty mess that's there. Too much clapping and bouncing. Um, Which is good, never too much. I know, Rich. I know, never too much. Um, It's great to have you here this morning one of, the, one of the things I, just, I love about mornings like today is just seeing the church gathered together with affection for one another, that we know one another, that we build each other up, that we support each other, exactly like Ben said. Like, we don't want to go through life trying to do it on our own. It's hard. Life's hard on your own. And so to know that you've got God with you and a God who loves you and cares for you and a church family that stands alongside you and encourages you as well. It's a massive joy to be able to do. So um, it's great. And thank you for everyone that was praying and collectively together. And don't forget each of those individual couples and families that are here and children continue to pray for them. And, um, and remember as well, in that morning when you turn up to church and someone's kid's screaming and you're thinking, would someone just grab hold of that kid? Remember, you probably prayed for that kid at some point. Encourage them. Build them up. Remember, we all get born in that way and grow up within the church. So, um, see, it's great as well. I just wanted to, to just other things to say, I love the worship team around here. Thank you so much for how you serve us each week. <laughs> Massive. It's... Um, Isaac's a real bopper, like, just because he's walking across. Isaac is always bopping away at the back of the thing there. But it was lovely because I saw him and Ollie, like, bopping in unison with each other just on either side of the stage. And we kind of should just enjoy what we do. We should enjoy our place of worship. You know, it's that funny one of if we really enjoy God, our face can show it as well. And um, and and I just I love that attitude of people just saying, "I love doing this. I love singing. I love worshiping. I love using instruments to come and bring praise and glory to God," which is great. Um, I need to just mention one thing um, this week on Wednesday. I sort of told you a few weeks ago but an amazing woman within the life of this church that would often just have been sitting about there, wouldn't she, for, for ages, Doreen and, and Eileen. She'd be sitting next to you, Pam, who would have been here. She'd been part of this church for like, Thirty years. I just—I remember moving here twenty years ago and getting to know Pam in the in the church. And she died a few weeks back. Um, but this Wednesday's her Thanksgiving service. It's at one o'clock. It's the crematorium, and then we'll be coming back here um, to share some stories and some encouragements. But I would—I'd I'd say to you. If you get an opportunity, and even if, if you know Pam, please come and join us. And even if you don't know Pam, I promise you it will bless you and encourage you. And there's nothing quite like a funeral to sort of gather your thoughts and bring a little bit of clarity and certainty to what living life's all about. And um, actually, when you see a woman who, who lived a life well, she did well. <laughs> Pam was an amazing example to us in how to love Jesus and to love people. And so um, to learn from that and to be around people that have lived that way is good for us. It gets something into our souls, it gets something into our hearts, and hopefully we try and live in that same way. So. Um, yeah, please do. It's Wednesday, one o'clock at the crematorium. Family will be there as well. Um, and if you, if you came along to Ken's just just a little while ago, Ken Roberts was a joy to be in that setting of just hearing a life that was lived well. And I can, I can just endorse it to you. I know it sounds weird endorsing a funeral, but I can just endorse it to you. It's an amazing place to come and hear the gospel and to see what living life really is all about. Um, Okay, so this morning, we're going to go into Acts again. We've only got a couple more weeks in the book of Acts that we've got. Next week, we're going to be baptising some people in the sea. Excited about that. Um, It's going to be boiling hot Sunday morning, I can tell, because it's the British summertime, and there's no way that it's going to rain or be cloudy next Sunday morning, because it's always sunny and sunny Britain uh, on a Sunday morning. And so so we're going to be down on the beach and next week we're going to be talking about actually this this Ethiopian eunuch that gets baptised. So we're going to be teaching that. That's our kind of last Sunday morning in the book of Acts together before we take a bit of a break over the summer and come back to in September. But today we're going to learn from another amazing example of someone who lived their life right up to the point of death in absolute certainty and conviction in who God is. And does anyone want to shout out to me? Who do we think that was? Anyone just want to say out loud an example? Someone who goes before us, first martyr witness who was willing to die for his faith in the Christian church was Stephen. There you go. And my surname is Ollie Stephen. So I was clearly (laughs) destined to preach on this this morning, spelt differently, no PH in my name um, with a V in it. But, um, but yeah, actually, only a few weeks ago, we appointed deacons in the life of this church. And as I was preparing and reading through, I just wanted to say to the deacons, hey, <laughs> you know, there's an example of what happens to one of the first deacons in the life of the church. <laughs> he preaches an amazing sermon. He sets an example of what it is to have complete and utter certainty and conviction in who Jesus the Christ was. And then they stone him. They drag him out of the city and they stone him for what he believes. There's a certainty in the way that we live our lives, but there's a reality of the things that we bump up against. So, um,. One of the ways that I love doing this and one of the things that I've really enjoyed about the book of Acts is what we're going to do is we're going to open our Bibles or you can turn your phone on. I trust all of you that you won't be checking Wimbledon scores. It hasn't started yet or Grand Prix results that are coming through. But you can open your phones. We're going to be in Acts 6 and we're going to start going through into Acts 7. so right at the end of Acts 6. What we're going to do is we're going to read through the story. We're going to pause in a few moments and try and see what's happening. What can we learn from this here? And then finally, we're going to consider as well, probably the biggest question that you'll ever be asked in your entire life. It's actually, what do you think about Jesus? Who do you say that he is? It's a massive question to be asked. We kind of need to have some level of thought or understanding or answer to that question. And what you'll notice is that Stephen's asking the crowd that are gathered around him that exact thing. Who do you say this Jesus is? I know who he is. Who do you think he is? So... um it's an amazing bit? It's kind of Acts has got a bit of a two-part parter to it. It's kind of the reason that we've built up to this point, and we're going to take a break in the summer and then come back. Is because we're just at the very end going to meet a character called Paul. And actually, what's happened is so much of this story has been centered around Jerusalem. It's been centered around the people that knew Jesus just after he died. He's just ascended to heaven. He's left them as they were. And now all of a sudden, the church is being empowered and built up and equipped by the Holy Spirit. They've met at Penn they're talking to each other they're building the early church but they're not yet ready to go so what we're going to do is we're going to take a little break and then when we come back in September you're going to see that a person like Paul says man this good news we can't just keep it here in Jerusalem we can't just keep it within ourselves we've got to go with it to the ends of the earth we've got to tell anyone that we can who this Jesus is and what this gospel is all about And so you kind of see it in that way. Now, what's interesting is that at this point, you've got like little factions that are going on. You've got like a little group of people that are now absolutely convinced in who Jesus is and they're followers of the Christ, but they're backed up against a whole bunch of leaders who are saying, we don't want this thing getting out. You need to pipe down. You need to be quiet. This truth about Jesus, we're going to crush it. We're going to get rid of it. We don't want people to hear about it. You need to be quiet in what you're doing. This is, this is like a clash of two worlds that are bouncing up each other, and you can see that actually these leaders are getting backed further and further up into a corner. And as they're getting backed into a corner, they're going to react, and that's why they're going to kill this guy, Stephen, as part of the story. Because that's what happens. You back someone up into a corner, and they react. They start, to, I used to be a teacher for a long time, and I noticed if I backed a kid up into a corner for too long, that kid would react. They would just, they didn't want to lose front, they didn't want to lose face. They'd speak out, they'd react, they'd throw things, they'd kick something over because they wanted to show I'm angry. And the local church leader, uh, the the local leaders at the time of the Jewish faith, the people they're bumping up against, the gospel is just pushing and pushing, they're saying, Come on, who do you say this Jesus really is? And they react, they react to the point of willing to drag a man out of the city and to kill him. But it's at that point as well where what the early church does is they don't get fearful and afraid of the death of one of their own. It propels them to go out. It propels them out of that place to say, man, if we're going to die for it, we're going to go. Where are they going to find us? How are they going to stop us? The world is never going to stop the advance of the Christian gospel as it goes. And therefore, they're willing to preach the gospel. And Ben said this so helpfully to us a few weeks ago, preach the gospel boldly. And what you'll notice is this beautiful bit about Stephen. Is these two little dynamics to him. He has this ability to proclaim the gospel. He says something. There's something about what he does that teaches truth. And he teaches it in an incredible way. And we're going to listen through some of the things that he teaches. But he also looks a certain way. Before we read it, does anyone know? what What does the Bible say that Stephen looks like in here? Face of an angel. That's a weird, you read it, you're like, okay, strange thing to say. But there's something beautifully captivating, not about his physical appearance, but about the way that he looks and the way that he lives. Can I just say to each of us, and I think this is a challenge, you know, what a funny week that we've lived in as well with British politics and all stuff that's been going on. But I think that what ultimately people are looking for is someone who's got something to say, they've got to be truthful. They've got to have convictions. They've got to speak with confidence and boldness in what they do. But they've also got to have something to see in their lives. I think that that's what ultimately we're looking for in life. People who have things to say, truth to say. They're going to stand by it. They're going to be clear about it. They're going to stick to what they've said. But they're also going to be examples in the way they live their lives. Stephen is a great example of that. He's got something to boldly say about what the gospel is. But he also has something to see in his life. They see that he looks different, something that's captivating about this person. Please church, whatever setting role we find ourselves in, wherever you go from this morning, please be a group of people that have something to boldly say and be something that is clearly seen who you are. Because if you've only got one dynamic of that, if people just look at you and go, they're a really nice person, but they don't really ever say anything, (laughs) they're just really nice. I don't really know what they believe. I don't really know what they think in life. They're just really lovely people. I think that we've overemphasized the face of an angel bit. Just looking, looking good, being, a, being attractive towards people. But as well, if, all we've, ever, if only all we've ever got is something to say, I think we've overemphasized that as well. I've got so much to tell you about Jesus. Don't bother looking at the way that I live my life. I don't want you to try and work out that, but I've got loads to tell you about what this book's going to say to you. And let me give you a good old bop on the head as we go with it. And I'll tell you these things, but don't look at the example that I set in the way that I live. Christian, be one who walks both, who has something to say, clear conviction, know the gospel, speak with truth, tell people about Jesus. But live a life that looks like him as well. Be people that have something to say and something to see in our lives. And Stephen is a great example of that. So we're going to look at, and he keeps asking this question, probably again, like I said, provoking question, who do you say the Christ is? What do you really think about this person, Jesus? So let's open our Bibles. We've got Acts 6. We've got Stephen accused of blasphemy. And we're going to start reading together. So I'm going to read from here. Now Stephen was full of grace and power. There you go. There's that little dynamic at work already. He's full of grace. He was kind. He was forgiving. He gave people what they didn't deserve, but he was full of power. and knew what he stood for. And he was full of both of those things. And he was performing great wonders and signs among the people. What happens? Opposition arises. The opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen's synagogue. They were composed of both Syrians and Alexandrians. These are people that have been like the established religion at the time. The people that this is like bumping up against. And they're saying like, what have you got to say? You're saying something different from what we've heard before. And opposition is starting to arise. And some from Cilicia and some from Asia. And what did they start to do? They started to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. He has something to say. He knew his Bible. He knew the truth and he taught people on it and he spoke about it. And then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, they stirred up the elders, they stirred up the scribes, the people who would have written things down. They, and so they came and they seized him and they took him to the Sanhedrin. It's like the ruling party at the time, the ruling religious leaders that are there. And they presented false witnesses who said, they paid people off and said, say these things about Stephen. Tell an account that isn't true. This man never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. We heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses has handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Can you do me a favor? Can you just look at the person next to you and look intently at them? Just look intently. Give them that little look of intent. Will and Catalina, you're doing an excellent example there. That's a very intent look I've got. Do you behold the face of an angel? Raise your hands for any angels that you've observed amongst... Oh, okay, there's a few. You're looking intently, and you observe the one whose face was like that of an angel. And they said this, Are these things true? The high priest asked Stephen. Brothers and fathers, he replied, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran and said to him, leave your country and leave your relatives and come to this land that I will show you. Just think of this point, just because we're going to pick up bits of references and things that are going on, just want to geek out for a second and show you a map. I love maps. I'm a map fan. Here you go. So on the side there, this is where we're talking about. This Old Testament patriarch, this first person called out to be a follower of God's. And actually this place that he gets called from, you can see it's up to sort of the top right of the map. This is where he gets called out. And this area called Mesopotamia, anyone know why it's called that? Come on, who's going to really geek out with me? What does Mesopotamia mean? It's messy. It isn't messy. It's good, I like it. Between rivers, exactly. And so this little area between the Euphrates and the Tigris River, between the area, they called it Mesopotamia. This is like a lot of people would say like the early civilizations of life come out of this place. And this is where God calls the first one out. And this is an interesting little bit here of talking about exile that's going on. So he gets called out of his homeland and he gets called to travel on this red route all the way down the side of the Mediterranean Sea and end up into this place that he's told is going to be a land for his, a land that will become his own, a place for his people, a place for his future inheritance for all time. And You see this journey that he gets taken on. And what Stephen's trying to do is he's trying to say, look, let's just look at the unfolding story. You're religious leaders. You know your Bibles. You know what the people are like before you. And what I'm telling you is you're no different from anyone else. If you think you're different, you're not. Humanity just goes round and round and round in circles. People are people. They always do the same. Behavior repeats itself. And you are going to make the same mistakes that our forefathers made. So he's starting to map out this story of the journey that they've been on. And he's going to point out that throughout it, they always got to this point where they denied God. They just, "Ah, I'm not really sure who he is. I'm going to trust myself instead of him. So he takes them on this journey. So this is this character Abraham's journey. So verse four carries on. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and he settled in Haran. And there after his father died, God had him moved to this land, which you are now living. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless at the time. But God spoke in this way. These are the promises of God that we get. God spoke in his ways. His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country. And they would enslave and oppress them for 400 years. And I will judge the nation that they will serve as their slaves. And God said this. After this, they will come out and worship me in this place. And so he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. This promise they're going to be set apart. God's people. After this, he fathered. He was childless at the time, but he fathered Isaac and he circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and they sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. God rescued him out of his troubles. He gave him favour and wisdom in sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who who appointed him ruler over Egypt and all of his whole households. Now a famine and great suffering came over all of Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could find no foods. When Jacob heard there was no grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there the first time. The second time, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh and Joseph invited his father, Jacob, and all his relatives, 75 people in all. It's grown, hasn't it? It grew from one man, Abraham, and now it's become these 12 children of Jacob and now 75 people in all. The family's starting to grow. The people of God are starting to grow. God's starting to be faithful to his promises. It's starting to bring them into lands. And Joseph invited his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt. So if you saw on the map, the journey's continued. They've left out of Mesopotamia. They've ended up in this land of Israel. Now they're being taken through into Egypt. He and our ancestors, what did they do? They died there. They were carried back to Seshem and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor. And As the time was approaching to fulfil the promise that God made to Abraham, the people flourished. They multiplied again in Egypt until a different king who didn't know Joseph ruled over Egypt. And what did he do? He dealt deceitfully with our race. He oppressed our ancestors. He made them abandon their infants outside so that they wouldn't survive. And at this time Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home for three months. When he was put outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and in his actions. When he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites and when he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue. He avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they didn't understand. The next day, he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully saying, men, your brothers, why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, who appointed you a ruler and a judge over all of us? Do you want to kill me the same way that you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Now, let's just, it's not just doing a history lesson for the sake of it, especially if we're sitting you're going, man, this is a lot of history. It's a lot of maps, a lot of things that's going on. Why is Stephen bothering to talk about their own people's history of what had gone on? He's doing it because he wants them to see history just repeats itself. He's bringing them up to speed of where they're at in the story now and saying, look, even at that time, you just told me a minute ago Jesus was dishonouring Moses. Our own people dishonoured Moses thousands of years ago. Let's not look at history with rose-tinted glasses like weren't we great and got it right in the past. No, no, no. Human behaviour circles round. Why are we teaching on it this morning as well? Because I want to say, don't just look at the past through rose-tinted glasses, realise we still find ourselves in that place today, where we still have to present the moment that we find ourselves in now, in this moment, who do you say that Jesus is? How do you treat him? God's own people at that time, they pushed away the great Moses. They sold the great Joseph into slavery. They disobeyed the, the, the promises of God at that moment. They didn't see, they didn't know. How are you going to behave today? Choice is yours in this moment. Don't just look back and say, well, someone else made a choice. What choice do we make ourselves today? So he's 40 years old. Why are you mistreating each other? And they pushed him aside and they said, do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And when he heard this, Moses fled and he became an exile. This is like a common story, isn't it? So Abraham goes on an exile. Joseph gets taken into exile. The people of God go down into, into Egypt. What does Moses do? He flees. He goes on to exile. Exiles, it's just, this is a theme that the Bible keeps coming through. Keeps talking about us being exiles, ones that don't stay as we are. We get moved by the presence of God into new places, sometimes places we don't want to be, sometimes places we long to be. <laughs> you know, even I was just even thinking this week, I say, say this at funerals quite a lot. Pam was an exile until she came home. She was an exile. This is not our home in this life. We are exiles until the day when we find our resting place with him for all eternity. Pam's home, we are exiles, waiting until the day when we end up with him for all eternity. Our choice, we follow him. So when they heard this, Moses fled and he became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After, how long was he there again? 40 years. This is like a recurring theme as well, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, That's just come to me. Is that why we play that game? I don't know. Or random thought just jumped into my head. I don't know. I'm going to have to think about that. Anyway, um, 40 years he travelled and he'd passed. And an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame of a burning bush. And Moses saw it. He was amazed at the sight. He was approaching to look at it, and the voice of the Lord came and said, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare look. And the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet, because the place where you are standing is holy grounds. I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, I've heard their groaning. I've come down to set them free. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected when they said, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge? This one God sent as a ruler and deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs of Egypt at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. It's interesting, isn't it? Just this repeating thing of 40, 40, 40. So as it comes up there, you've got the next one? 40 years it's going across. 40 years, Moses was trained in Egypt. He was brought up as an Egyptian. He was trained in how to speak, in how to lead. He would have learned how to command respect and authority. Then for 40 years, he goes on the run as a shepherd in the desert. Life's starting to shape him. So he has all the education, but then he has to learn character in the desert. What's it really going to be like when no one's paying you any attention? Periods of time, 40 years. 40 years of training, something to say. 40 years learning how to behave, something to see. 40 years then wandering in the wilderness. 40 years of wandering around the desert with a whole bunch of moaners that constantly want to say, Oh, life was better in Egypt. We used to get cucumbers there. Oh, it was so nice. We were so, lo- at least we had water when we were in Egypt, just wandering around. I think that Moses led so well because he had 40 years of learning something to say. He had 40 years of learning something to see and for 40 years he endured with a bunch of people who were just moaning around him and he led out of conviction and love and certainty in who God was. That life doesn't sound massively fulfilling as a journey, does it? One hundred I'm like, if I make it to 120 years, I'm, I'm about to hit 40 years, I've got another 40 years maybe on the run as a shepherd. If I get my last 40 years wandering around a desert place, it's not particularly the retirement that I'm hoping for. But, but in it, you just notice actually God leads us into the places that he chooses to lead us. Moses isn't in control. Moses just follows and is obedient to the call of God and where God places him. But throughout all of it, he has something to say, boldness, conviction. This is who God is. These are the promises that he's made to us. And he lives out. He's not, a, you know, all of these characters, all of us, none of us are perfect examples of how to live it. We're not. But we're just trying to imitate the one who is perfect. As Juliet said this morning, the perfect spotless lamb of God that we try and imitate, he's the one that we try and follow. But we live lives with something to say and something to see. So 40 years are doing that, we'll carry on. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God, I will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. He is the one who was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And with our ancestors, he received living oracles to give to us. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside, and their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. They even made a calf in those days. It's like a you know a calf is actually a young baby cow. Offered sacrifices to the idol and were celebrating what their hands had made. God turned away and gave them up to worship the stars of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. House of Israel, did you bring me offerings and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan. The images that you made to worship, so I will send you into, where does he send them again? Exile into Babylon, Babylon. They basically, so this is the rose tinted glasses that Stephen's saying to his audience. Our forefathers rejected Moses just the same way that you're rejecting Jesus. And you're rejecting me. You're rejecting prophets. Ones that have gone before, I promise you, you're rejecting him. You're doing it again. You're worshipping what your hands have made. You've turned the temple, you've turned the law, you've turned your religious practice, you've turned your, your, your impressive stature, you've turned your roles and responsibilities. You made that stuff and you've turned it into the thing to be worshipped. You're worshipping the made stuff rather than the one who makes it. You've lost the plot. You forgot what this is all about. You forgot the Christ. You forgot God's. And you're not the first and you won't be the last that does it, but come on make a different decision. That's what he's trying to say to him. So where does he take them? He goes go, second slide. They go into exile. And where do they go back on exile again? Does that little red journey look familiar? They go back into an area of Mesopotamia. How annoying is human behaviour? What's been will be again. You know, it'll just go round and round and round in seconds. They came out. Abraham must have been thinking, you're joking me, aren't you? We kind of ended up back here again. Literally, I had to travel out of this place as a one-man band following God just to get us down into the promised land that we had. We ended up in Egypt. We got back here and then we gave up on God again. And where did we end up? Back where it all started. We go back on the journey. It's okay if you feel like life's like that a little bit. Do any of you get in life and you think, how am I back here? I cannot believe I'm back at home on my mum's sofa. Why did that happen? I can't believe that I'm back here again, really? You're a human, humans do that stuff. I can't believe that we've just got rid of another prime minister, really? Are we back there again round and round and round in circles? It happens. Don't start thinking that we're on some upward trajectory to life just getting better and better and better. That is an absolute... I'm putting my Bible down because it's a lie that we get told. It's the Disney gospel that you're being told, that life is just slowly getting better. It isn't. It's no different from what it's ever been before. We might have slightly... I'm glad we got dentists. I'm glad that we've got you know, an NHS healthcare. I'm glad that we've got free education that's going on. But we are still humans and we still make mistakes and we still worship the things that are hand- have made rather than worship the creator himself and we end up going on exiles and wandering around in desert places and all God ever wants is to bring us back to him. Know him in the places that you go. It's what we long for, what we long to see. Okay so we travel on and now he goes on to another bit that they made. So he says our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness. It's basically a big tent I'll show it to you in a minute. Just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn received it. And with Joshua, they brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before them until the days of David. This is a bit of that Joshua teaching series we did a little while ago. They take the tabernacle, the presence of God with them into the lands. He found favour in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. It was Solomon, rather, who built him a house. But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what will be my resting place? Did not my hands make all these things? It's just a little picture of them. On the left, that's the tabernacle. It's a tent they used to carry around with them when they were travelling through the promised lands and they'd set it up and they'd build it and they'd camp in all of their tribes around the presence of God that dwelled in the middle and they'd put the Ark of the Covenant in there and the priests would go in and make sacrifice and the temple is just a giant brick version of the tabernacle because now we don't have to wander with a tent that we've got to build every few, every few months whenever we move again and the presence of God moves us. We've got a permanent place now. We're in Jerusalem. Let's build a temple So they build the temple under the the instruction of God, but they build a dwelling place for gods. And what you've got to realise is Stephen's talking into this context before the temple, the Sanhedrin, they're in charge of it, they're looking after it, and he's saying to them, you're worshipping, again, the stuff that we've made. The temple isn't the thing to worship. The tabernacle isn't the thing to worship. Indiana Jones, don't worry about trying to find the Ark of the Covenant. That's not what we worship. (laughs) We worship the living God and he doesn't inhabit and it, he doesn't inhabit brick and mortar and buildings like this. He inhabits the church which is his people. Amen. He inhabits us. So when we're on the road last week the church is only on the road because you're not here. This didn't move anywhere. We didn't move the building anywhere at all. When we go out to baptise people on the sea next week, it's because we want to get the people of God, the dwelling place of God, inside out. We want to turn the church inside out. We don't want the church to be a place where people gather to brick and mortar. We want them to gather to you. You're the church. You're the dwelling place of God. Every time that you gather in your small groups, in your homes, in your families, with your neighbours, every time you have something to say and something to see, you're the church. You're inside out. Get out of here. Don't gather to meet and encounter God and build each other up and be part of the family and serve alongside each other and then get out of this place and go and serve the town you live in. Love the people you know. Display the gospel in all that you do. The church is called to be inside out. That's why we're baptising, not here next week. We could have set up a baptism pool here. We're not doing it. We've got a giant baptism pool on our seafront. We're going to go dunk people there instead. In a few weeks' time, we could have done our church lunch in here again. But we're not. We're going to go to Handon Park. And we're going to have it on the 7th of August. Why? We want to turn the church out. Because the people of God, you're the inhabitation of the living God, lives in you. Go, display it into the world in which we live in. This is when Stephen really winds them up now. He says, verse 51, you stiff necked people. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what an equivalent like this would be now, but you stiff necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Now that's you know, if you don't get the reference to that, <laughs> I'll be a bit crude, but it's all right. They've had their their bits circumcised. They look physically circumcised. They've got all the outward marks of circumcision being set, set apart from God but their heart is no different. They haven't got circumcised hearts and minds. They're not, their heart is not set apart from God. Their body's been set apart from God at eight days old. Again, challenge to us. How much of what we do is so that people just see something in us without really there being anything under the surface? Don't have you know just i don't know visual religion where you just look good that's not the point of it have your heart set apart for god's give this to him give this to him not just your not just your outward signs see you're always resisting the holy spirit you're doing it as your ancestors did which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute <laughs> Which? Give me one. They, they didn't persecute. That's what he's basically asking. It's like pointless. Can you even find one? No. They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Oh, man. Okay, he's not pulling any punches. You receive the law under the direction of angels, and yet you have not kept it. Let me just I just want to read you a bit from an old testament book called Ezekiel, it's a prophetic book. Just because this is the sort of stuff that that Stephen's pointing out, Ezekiel twenty. I chose Israel, I swore an oath to the descendants of Jacob's house, this is Ezekiel twenty, and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I'm the Lord your gods. And on that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I'd search out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful of all lands but they rebelled against me and they were unwilling to listen to me. None of them threw away their abhorrent things that they prized and they did not abandon the idols of Egypt. So I brought them out of the land of Egypt and I led them into the wilderness. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. Then I said to the children in the wilderness, don't follow the statutes of your fathers. Defile yourself with their idols or keep their ordinances. I'm the Lord your God, but the children rebelled against me. Can you just see, this is just goes round and round and round again. And Stephen's just trying to say, come on, we're just the same as we once were, but this is a chance. Are we going to be different? Are you going to be different? He's giving them a choice. While I was preparing this, I, was just, I think this is a brilliant, um, brilliant parable that Jesus tells. And again, I think Jesus is speaking into this stuff specifically when he tells it. So I'm just going to read you a parable. This is the parable of the vineyards. It says this, Now Jesus began to tell them a parable. A man planted a vineyard. He leased it to tenant farmers and he went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers so they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the farmers beat him up. They sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another servant. They beat that one up too. They treated him shamefully. They sent him away empty-handed. But he sent yet a third, a third. But they wounded this one too and they threw him out. Repeated behaviour. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they discussed it among themselves and they said, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. They threw him out of the vineyards, and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and he will kill those farmers and he will give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, they said, that must never happen. But he looked at them and said, then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Then the scribes, the chief priests, look for a way to get their hands on him that very hour because they knew he told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Stephen's just going back. He's doing the same as what Jesus did. Saying, Really? You're going to reject the Savior again. You've just done it. You've just killed the Christ. Your forefathers did it. They rejected God. Are you going to do it again? And so this is where we hit in Acts 7. When they heard these things, they were enraged. They gnashed their teeth at him and Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. It's the only time I found in Scripture that he ever says Jesus was standing rather than seated. He said, look, I see the heavens opens and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God's. Man, oh, what a joy just to see Christ in all authority standing before you. You're about to die and you see the one that you've lived your life for in absolute certainty and conviction and he's waiting to welcome you home. And they yelled at the top of their voices. They covered their ears and they rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. Saul agreed with putting him to death. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. You know, that's God's words. I just want to, just, could the band just join me in this moment? Because I just want to, I want to link this in to the fact that Stephen's just an example of Jesus. Stephen's not the hero of this story. He really isn't. Even the way that Luke writes Acts' gospel is a beautiful way of trying to show really all Stephen's doing is imitating Jesus. Where does Stephen get killed? Outside the city. They drag him outside the city walls. Where was our Messiah, Jesus, killed? Outside the city walls. As Stephen dies, what does he say? Receive my spirit. What are the words that Jesus cries out to God? <laughs> Receive my spirit. And then Stephen says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. What does Jesus say on his death? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Stephen is just an imitation, is a shadow, is a a pointer, is a guide, is an example of what our true Saviour and Messiah is really like. When we leave here and as we sing and as we gather, it isn't to go, well done, Stephen. It's to say, Jesus, I love you and I want to live a life like you lived even if it's to the point of death, even if it's to the point of persecution and suffering, whatever it would lead us to, I'm convinced that you are the Christ. I'm not going to reject you like our forefathers. Many have rejected Jesus. Many have rejected him. There's a huge line you could gather with of people that have said, not for me. But there's also a great cloud of witnesses who go before us, Pam Hinks included, who says Jesus is the Messiah I believe in him, I love him, and I'm going to set an example of how to love others as I live my life. You choose. The choice is ours. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we're invited to make a choice, to put our whole hope in the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus. I just I, Again, I just, I'd invite you to just maybe close your eyes just in this moment. If you want to stand, you're like, you don't have, I don't want everyone to stand, but if you just feel in this moment you just want to stand before the living gods. I'm just going to stand now, I'm going to pray, I'm closing my eyes as I do, because I, I don't want to be distracted by a room full of people. I just want to give my attention to God now. I just want to thank him, I want to say, Jesus, I thank you for the example you've set me. I thank you that I know you. thank you that you know me. I choose to live my life for you again today. I choose to believe in you. There's no other gods but you and you alone. Jesus, I do not reject you again. I accept you as my Lord and Saviour. Put my hope in you. Jesus, I love that you died in my place and I'm willing to go to my death for you, Jesus. Jesus, I'm willing to be persecuted for the things that I'll say and the things that people will see in my life because I'm convinced that you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're the chosen one. You're the one that every prophet pointed forward to. You're the one that every eye lifts before. You're the one that all creation, as Rich said at the beginning, directs our gaze towards. You're the centrepiece of all of this great unfounding story and I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would help each and every man, woman, child here today to know you once again, to receive your goodness, to know your grace. Jesus, you're so worthy of our praise. We love you, Lord. Amen.